Coming up today, the next year under coronavirus, the takeaway food conundrum, and we delve into the Zoom privacy fears. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Koala. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Google started releasing mobility reports for more than 130 countries around the world. Using data from Google Maps, Google is able to quite accurately see how billions of people around the world move. In the UK, for example, Google has seen an 85% reduction in movement in the retail and recreation centres and a 75% portfall in people moving around on public transport. Unemployment claims jumped by almost 1 million in the UK this week as people lost their jobs because of coronavirus. Benefit applications are 10 times the normal UK level as the economy descends into recession. This is also the week when experts warn that we could see a resurgence in diseases like polio and measles because the coronavirus is hampering eradication programmes. UNICEF has been forced to pause its vaccination efforts for fear of spreading the coronavirus. And it was finally the week when the UK government set itself the target of performing 100,000 coronavirus tests every day by the end of April after it was criticised for its slow uptake of testing. The country passed 10,000 tests a day for the first time on April the 1st, so it has a really long way to go before it gets up to 100,000. And just quickly on that, Matt, the government um, has been... Uh, saying in the past that mass testing wasn't part of its strategy, but it's now been saying that, well, it it was, um, but uh, people kind of got the wrong end of the stick. So what's really going on here? Yeah, it's all a bit of a mess, to be honest. But my sense is, is early on, um, it wasn't a case that mass testing wasn't part of its strategy so much as public health England thought that they couldn't do it they didn't think there was capacity they didn't think that you know they could ramp it up so they thought well let's not you know make it part of our main strategy obviously they've got so much uh, criticism from that because you look at Germany or South Korea even places like Italy Iceland as well um, you know done loads of testing and it's really quite important for you know understanding the extent of the disease that I think the government has forced to, you know been forced to acknowledge that it actually does need to um, you know ramp this up and the problem is is we're now at a kind of two month deficit we were talking about this back in January we knew we had to ramp up his testing but it wasn't really done and only now are we saying oh maybe we should kind of get up to these figures by um the end of the month so it has been a yeah it's been a bit of a bit of a situation it feels like once we're out the back of this however long that takes and we'll be talking about this a little later in the podcast once we do get to the other side of this that questions will be asked about how slow the government was to appreciate the importance of mass testing uh so what did we learn this week let's start with you natasha um well so i was looking into furlough uh which is a weird little word that we started using in the uk um that word comes from the dutch word verlof i don't actually know if i'm pronouncing that properly but it means leave of absence and so this this was used in the us and it peaked in the 1940s according to amit whose figures i have stolen and is doing so again as millions of people in the uk are trying to find out what the hell that word actually means so that was my fact of the week hope you enjoyed that (laughs) 
Very good. Good Dutch <laughs> pronunciation. Uh, Amit, what did you learn this week? I have a non-coronavirus fact this week. So um, you'll, you'll be familiar with fMRI brain scanning, which is kind of used in a wide range of psychological studies. It's the, the one which shows the brain kind of lighting up when you think about a certain thing. Um, but it's not necessarily as reliable as some psychologists would like you to think. And um, in 2009, researchers at Dartmouth University put a dead salmon in an MRI machine uh, and showed the dead salmon pictures of humans in different social situations. Um, and they actually found electrical activity in the salmon's brain. Um, and they, they ran this experiment, kind of a jokingly uh, experiment to kind of highlight some of the flaws in the statistical analysis of MRI data. So you can kind of get these like false positives and basically kind of as a warning to say, don't necessarily believe what you see in these scans, because actually, if you take it at face value, then this dead salmon was kind of processing human interactions. Why did they use a dead salmon? Uh, presumably they'd just been down the market that day and that was all they could get. <laughs> <laughs> Look, guys, I've got a dead salmon. We can have some fun. Uh, what did you learn this week, Matt Reynolds? So I learned that the online supermarket Ocado has stopped delivering bottled water to its customers through the corona crisis the reason is that it says that it frees up loads of space or let it deliver to an extra six thousand homes every week so it turns out that a lot of people buy a lot of bottled water and it uses up a load of space in vans it comes out the tap everyone you don't need to buy that much bottled water uh i also have a sort of coronavirus related fact so um we're, we're recording this podcast via the video conferencing app zoom uh, everyone um, that's listening is probably spending an awful lot of their life on Zoom, so much so that it's now worth $38.2 billion, which is more than eight times the valuation of International Consolidated Airlines Group, which is better known as British Airways and Iberia. They're the flag carriers of the UK and Spain, respe respectively. Um, the airline group has 64,734 employees and owns a fleet of 370 gigantic planes. Zoom has 1,958 employees and lets you annoy your colleagues while working remotely. We live in exceptional times. Our first story this week uh, is um, something that we took a really, really in-depth look at this week. As with all the stories we talk about on the podcast, we'll include a link in the show notes. Matt Reynolds, you've been looking at the next year or more under coronavirus and what we can all expect. That is right. So before we kind of dive into the future of coronavirus, I thought it might be a good idea to give a quick summary of where we are right now. So we're recording this uh, on, what day is it today? It is April the 3rd. Um, and as of April the 3rd, there have been more than 1 million confirmed COVID-19 infections across the world and 53,000 deaths in the UK alone. That's about 34,000 positive cases and just under 3,000 deaths. But as you would have been hearing from these, uh, you know, these daily press conferences we've been having in the UK, uh, as we're entering our, our third week of lockdown, a lot of people are starting to think uh, about the future. Right? A lot of these questions are, how long have we got left? Is it six weeks? Is it, you know, is it three months? How long is it going to be? Um, and that's the question everyone is asking. How long is this lockdown going to go on for? 
So at the start of this crisis, we had Boris Johnson in the UK and Donald Trump in the US saying that this was going to be a short, sharp shock or something that would be getting through really, really quickly and the world would be able to get back to business. America would be able to get back to work and the UK would be out of this um, within 12 weeks. Obviously, things haven't turned out that way or they definitely don't look like they're going to. So what makes coronavirus so hard to tackle and why were we suggesting just a few weeks ago that it wouldn't be this hard yeah i mean and, and that's the thing i think that if we know anything loads of uncertainties around this but what we do know is this is going to be with us a lot longer than we might have thought of um you know maybe even as soon as a month ago now part of that reason is 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 you know coronavirus is a real a real kind of perfect storm of a disease so it's it's infectious enough so it kind of creeps from person to person uh, until hospitals are overwhelmed but it is slow enough that as we've seen in places like Wuhan, um, the you know drastic lockdown measures, uh, you know, uh, like yeah, as I said, like we've seen in China, um, do seem to have an effect on its spread, and that's really important because if this was a really super infectious disease, something like measles, for measles, uh, one person with the infection tends to infect you know between twelve and eighteen other people. It would just kind of sweep through the population, and we wouldn't have a chance to do anything. We wouldn't there wouldn't be much point putting a lockdown in place because it wouldn't make a difference. But um, COVID nineteen isn't like that, so each person and probably infects between two and three other people. And that means that although it kind of does creep through the population, um, putting in place these lockdown measures really does seem to have an impact. So that's, that's one thing. It's kind of infectious is, is in this real kind of tricky spot. Now, the other big problem, and this is what we're seeing coming out of Italy and Spain and now the United States, is that COVID-19 is it's a really deadly disease. So now we don't exactly know uh, the fatality rate, and we won't know for a long time, but there's this thing called the case fatality ratio or case fatality rate, which is out of confirmed cases, how many people end up dying. And we think that at the moment from different countries, that's kind of, it's probably between... Uh, uh, 0.25%, a quarter of a percent, or 3%. But in places like Italy, where the health system's been overwhelmed, it's above 10%, and it might be much higher than that. And in the UK, it's just above 6%. So we've got these two things, right? So we've got a really infectious disease, and it's, um, you know, it's seriously deadly, right? It's not like uh, influenza that has a kind of infection rate, I think, I'm sorry, a fatality rate of like 0.1 or even a bit less than that. Now, the third problem and this is kind of the biggest problem, is that a whole bunch of people that get infected with COVID-19, they only experience mild symptoms or none at all. We've got some data on people returning from flights from China at the end of January, and they found that actually around 50% of people, between 40 and 50% of people that, um, you know, uh, test actually tested positive for the test had been undetected. So they did, you know, they weren't presenting symptoms. No one thought they had it. And what this means, if you have this huge reservoir of healthy or only mildly unwell people, you kind of go about their normal lives. They spread the disease to more vulnerable people. And by the time the first patients start ending up, uh, you know, turning up at hospitals with you know, real severe respiratory distress, it's too late because this you know, huge network of infected people has probably spread it, um, you know, far and wide, which kind of explains why we're at this situation now where you have these kind of mounting death rates, because actually it's this kind of it's this perfect disease for spreading pretty undetected before it starts impacting our, our health systems. On that healthy, unhealthy person thing, the people that got off the flights in China and the Diamond Princess cruise ship as well, where we do have these sort of analyses of set groups of people with a good age range, the people that are healthy, it's the case that they can go through this entire disease and, and never really get unwell. But there are other people who can be quite healthy for quite a long time and then really take a turn for the worst 10 or 12 days into 
um, a period where they're starting to show symptoms, right? Yeah, so there's essentially a really big range. So lots of people are completely asymptomatic and we think that perhaps an asymptomatic person spreads the virus a little bit less. We think they probably do still spread it to other people. Other people get mild symptoms. We think they're probably most infectious, you know, at the onset of their symptoms. So actually, if you're having a mild case, that means you're most infectious when you're starting to get some, you know, some aches, you're starting to get a fever, but you probably you know, may well have still been turning up uh, at work, perhaps even now if you're a key worker. And you've got these other people that only get ill much later on. So there's this, this real kind of range and this made it really, really difficult. Um, and obviously now we're social isolating, so it's less of an issue. But this is exactly the type of thing that made it really easy to kind of spread throughout the population because even when the advice was if you've got a fever or a cough, stay at home, lots of people were probably spreading it without either of those symptoms. So it's really difficult to um, you know, kind of get a handle on the early stages of the outbreak. And so, Matt, what is the what's the deal with with testing? Why why is there such a big problem with it? And why don't we know how to fix this? What's what's going on? Yeah, so that's the kind of other problem. So we've got this, you know, the disease is really bad, really difficult to manage with, but also we don't really have the tools to deal with it. Because imagine in an ideal world, right, you could wave a magic wand and be like, tell me everyone that's got COVID-19 in the population. And you'd know it where everyone was, you'd be like, all right, go home or go to some isolation ward, like get them out of the environment. The problem is we've not really been able to do that because we haven't managed to, you know, uh, ramp up the testing so at the moment or well actually as, as of march 20th the testing data is quite difficult to kind of get uh, get aligned between countries so the uk had tested 65,000 people you compare that to somewhere like south korea which had performed at the same point in time around 320,000 tests so it's really clear in the UK that actually we don't have a very good idea of whether testing is really telling us much about how many people have the disease. We're actually seeing this in Italy right now as well. So basically, it looks like cases are starting to plateau um, in Italy um, and deaths as well. But what we've actually seen is that testing kind of has, it's actually dipped a little bit in Italy. So they're testing fewer people each day. So you don't know. Are you just seeing fewer cases because you're testing fewer people? Are you just seeing more cases because you're testing more people? Um, and what is actually going on? So there's that, there's that factor, right? We don't really know exactly the picture of what is going on about the, with the disease. Now, a better thing to look at might be deaths because you know if someone has died, right? And you usually know if someone has died from COVID-19. It's, it's not really the case, although there are some people that die at home, that someone that ends up dying from COVID-19, never presents to the hospital, right? Unlike mild cases where we just never even see them, you, you kind of know most people that end up dying of the disease. But there's kind of a problem there as well, because it takes around um, 18 days for someone to die from COVID-19. So that's from the first onset of their symptoms to their final breath. And there's also a gap between a person being exposed to the virus and then and then them showing symptoms. That's kind of about five days. It's called the incubation period. Um, or it might be as high as 14 days. We're not really sure. But usually we think it's around five days. So that's a massive problem because it means that actually when you start seeing deaths, what that means is those people were infected probably three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. So what you're actually seeing is the result of the spread that was happening in your population all those weeks ago. So we saw yesterday in the UK, I think it was saying like, you know, 500 new deaths. All those people had been infected before we had social distancing um you know before these daily press conferences you know they were being infected back in early march so all these kind of figures do is tell you what has happened we don't really know what is happening right now so given the kind of imperfect information that the government's working with like how are we ever going to get out of this yeah and that's that's a big question isn't it because i've kind of painted like a bit of a grim picture you know we don't know much and things are kind of bad what we do know is that 
it'll probably be a vaccine that'll actually uh, you know, properly take us out of this crisis, right? You know, there are different ways to build up immunity within a population. You can get herd immunity. That's if enough people get it. We don't think that enough people are going to be able to get COVID-19 without overwhelming the health system. We kind of think after this peak, even in London, the worst hit place in the UK, no more than 10% of people would have had the disease. So herd immunity is not really an option. Maybe the disease could go away. It might transmit less in summer. That's true, but it might come back again. So probably the only uh, you know end point, if you like, overall end point, how do we get rid of this disease or stop it transmitting altogether? It's probably going to be a vaccine, but they take a really long time to develop. So that could be 12 to 18 months. Now, that's kind of the bad news, if you like, on the long-term picture. The good news is that the reason that deaths occur is, is you know, the, the kind of widespread, you know, the widespread infection, especially among vulnerable people, and also when ICU uh, intensive care units get overwhelmed. We've got some good news on that because the government's modelling and, um, you know, one of the kind of chief modellers is a guy called Neil Ferguson uh, out of Imperial College London, and they've said, actually, we think the UK overall, their ICU capacity won't be overwhelmed. So we can be fairly confident that although quite a lot of people will die, probably in the tens of thousands in the UK, that we're not going to see a kind of Italy level um, you know, overwhelm with our ICU unit. So in the short term, we think it'll be all right, but that doesn't really help us in the 18 months it might be till we have a vaccine. That's October 2021, which seems like an awfully long time to go. And we've been focusing on the UK here, but it's probably worth opening this up to the world because this is a global pandemic. The numbers that we're seeing out of the United States in particular at the moment are hugely, hugely concerning. And there are um, uh, renewed concerns being expressed by the World Health Organization about the situation in the Middle East. We're expecting to see spikes of cases in Southeast Asia and Africa that haven't really come on, um, come on board yet. So there's an awful long way to go if we're 18 months away from having a vaccine and countries with the wealth and health support network of the United States are getting into trouble. It's kind of terrifying what might happen in countries that don't have such um, levels of resource, right? Yeah. And I mean, this all kind of comes back to this second wave thing, right? So most countries around the world, or not, not most, but a lot of countries are having significant outbreaks. Now, what usually happens is an outbreak kind of peaks. We might have social distancing and the kind of um, you know, vulnerable population will kind of go down. So, so the, the epidemic will kind of gradually come to a, uh, you know, not, not a halt, but the kind of the, the, the number of cases will kind of start to uh, you know, come down to quite a low number. Now, the problem is, as soon as you start relaxing that social distancing, what we think will happen is that that number of infected uh, will just go up again. This is kind of a, you know, they call it a second wave. And we're starting to see evidence perhaps of that happening in China. New imported cases come in as they, re- you know, as they you know, release these lockdown measures, the cases kind of go up again. What that might mean that we have to put in place all around the world, and it, it remains to be seen how different countries will approach this, is something like um, intermittent social distancing. So what you might have is, as right now, we've had a period of, you know, three weeks of lockdown. Maybe this extends for two months, maybe three months. You relax it. You start to look at the rate of transmission as soon as it starts creeping up again. And as soon as the ICU units, the ICUs start to uh, get full up, you put social distancing in place again. So and if you look at the kind of imperial modelling, or there's another, you know, another study out of Harvard, they suggest that you might need this kind of intermittent, so intermittent social distancing to be in place um, 
you know, for maybe 18 months, maybe as long as two years, it's kind of as long as a vaccine. And that's probably the situation we're facing. Basically, if you relax everything, you probably will get a second peak, right? Because everyone's vulnerable, or most people are vulnerable, it's still going to come back. So we need to think of a way that can sustain, you know, stop those second peaks happening and try and keep this low over a long amount of time. That probably means a lot of disruption for quite a long time. And we've even seen this morning in Singapore, which has really managed to keep on top of its coronavirus outbreak, they're introducing very, very strict lockdown measures now, having previously been able to get a grip on the situation there. So it's a it's a very, very likely reality that we'll be seeing these social distancing and lockdown measures for many, many months and potentially more than a year into the future. There's a lot more detail in Matt's in-depth look into coronavirus over the next year to 18 months. We'll include a link in the show notes. If you've got any questions for Matt about that story or anything else regarding coronavirus and our scientific and political response, podcast at wired.co.uk. I'm sure he'll do his best to answer them for you. Our second story this week is about takeaways and something slightly curious that happened a couple of weeks ago when all of the UK's major chain restaurants, Nando's, Greg's, KFC, McDonald's, Burger King, shut down. No takeaways no restaurants, no nothing. And yet across the UK, all of your local takeaways are probably still open. So Natasha, we asked why and how? Yeah, so on the 20th of March, uh, Boris Johnson stood at a podium um, during a press conference and decided finally uh, to tell cafes, pubs, bars and restaurants to close um, during that same evening saying, you know, this is untenable. We need to protect people from the spread of the virus. This is one of his final appearances before getting it himself. Um, so obviously quite memorable for a lot of businesses uh, that were on the brink. This was a huge blow. Um, they'd already uh, been affected by weeks of slowdown and people just not showing up to buy anything but it was an understandable development now a lot of these pubs cafes bars and restaurants decided we're just going to become takeaway establishments and they set themselves up as such um, the interesting thing is about two days later nando's decided to put a message on its uh, website and that message said that there was no guarantee that the restaurant could keep either its patrons or its staff safe during the crisis and would therefore have to stop taking orders in quite quick succession Burger King, Greggs, KFC, McDonald's and others followed suit. These are really, really huge names in the industry, very, very big in takeaways anyway. And it came as a massive shock to a lot of the delivery um, apps that relied on their custom. Now, this, this is interesting because obviously you've got these very, very big businesses. They're set up for this function. And yet they found themselves saying, we can't offer takeaways. Yet you'll have your local curry house and your Chinese um, around the corner that are still open, even though they're a lot smaller and their, their kitchens themselves are smaller too. So we asked the question of why. <laughs> and um, I think the, the interesting what was, thing... What was the answer? Well, the answer... <laughs> the answer thanks, James. The answer was, was two reasons. First of all, bigger companies can't afford for a huge outbreak to happen in their restaurants. So no kitchens in the UK are set up for, for social distancing, which requires around two metres of, of separation between members. That just can't happen in a kitchen. You've got things flying around, people are moving from space to space, they're handing each other food, um, working on different stations. Um, it, it's just not set up for that. Um, but a lot of the bigger businesses like McDonald's, like Burger King, can't afford for hundreds of their workers to suddenly fall ill um, and not be able to work because it, it genuinely defies the purpose of, of ordering on all this food and it would hugely impact their supply chain. So that, that's one of the reasons. And the University of Cambridge um, expert that I spoke to, um, Stephen Baker, was talking about um, 
the practicalities of it. They're worried about knock-on effects for facilities. And economically speaking, they could actually afford to take that hit. So these are really big businesses. They have a huge um, sort of profit margin. They don't have to worry necessarily about being closed for a few months. Um, well, I, they have to worry, obviously, as, as any business does. But they can very much weather the storm, whereas your local curry house just can't. And this is really interesting because it seemed, uh, you know, I kind of naively assumed that, yeah, they'd shut the restaurants, but probably they'd keep these kitchens open because, you know, that's easier and you could do that, uh, you know, without kind of exposing, uh, you know, too many people to the virus. So, But this is presumably a huge deal because loads of, you know, I'm guessing Nando's sees tens of thousands of people every day and McDonald's serves loads of people for lunch. So, you know, where does all that demand go? Is, does this mean that everyone's, you know, having a, a you know, run on the supermarkets and that they're going to struggle to cope with that added pressure now? Yeah, so the UK is a takeaway nation. Um, we've got figures in this piece that talks about sort of 23% of adults ordering a takeaway once a week or more, uh, 33% at least once every month. Um, th- this is a huge market. Um, in, in 2017, it was valued at 6.2 billion in the UK, according to Statista. So so this is a huge, huge part of the economy. And it's, it's really the only thing that's standing in the way of more pressure on supermarkets, which have been massively overwhelmed throughout this crisis. Um, it, what happened there was we saw a uh, basically a failure in the supply chain. They had a, a just, um, just-in-time demand system uh, whereby a small increase on everyone's uh, weekly shop meant that the entire system was crumbling down. That's why we saw so many empty shelves. That's why we saw so many queues and so much panic buying uh, because people were basically reacting to the situation. And these takeaways that are still, I mean, you see, you go out onto the street, you might not see many cars, you might not see many vans, but you see a load of people on bikes and a load of people on um, kind of uh, cycles looking to deliver these um, these goods to people on their doorsteps. And that's really the only thing that's standing in the way of even more pressure on supermarkets at the moment. But the interesting thing here is also you see this knock-on effect already happening. So the likes of Deliveroo, Just Eat and Uber Eats um, are seeing a bit of a a drop in demand. We're not seeing the boom that you would expect. People aren't turning to takeaway deliveries um, to 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 fit the bill, and so this is this is an interesting development because you'd think people would would do that, and it's just not happening. Why is that? Because I would have thought that that this would be a great time to be a delivery, uh, maybe not a driver, but like a shareholder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I would have thought that people were ordering more takeaways than ever now that they can't go out to restaurants, can't go out to bars. It's like the one treat you're basically allowed, but that's not happening. Yeah, you'd think so. But um, but what's happening here is you've got a huge amount of revenue that suddenly disappeared. So in the space of a couple of days, um, all of the major uh, restaurants that featured on all of these delivery apps have just vanished. And a lot of people would go to those apps specifically to get those products. If if you look at the, the sort of a revenue spread of, you know, the likes of Just Eat, the likes of Deliveroo, the likes of Uber Eats, um, there's a huge percentage of it that's reliant on the likes of McDonald's and KFC and, and that cohort, suddenly that's vanished and people aren't going to the apps to find, you know, their local establishments. It's just not happening. Even though these people have stayed open at great risk, by the way, personally, to their frontline staff um, and, and trying to do the best they can, they're not necessarily receiving all of the custom that you would expect from McDonald's as a knock-on effect. So people aren't using these apps and there's also huge amounts of concern um, because they, they're afraid that if they have any kind of exposure to anyone from the app, outside world, it's going to um, increase their likelihood of, of having the virus. So there was some good advice that was given, well I say good advice, there's some basic advice that was given by Deliveroo uh, to its drivers, which you can see a really weird video um, online if you fancy watching, where they basically asked the 
delivery drivers to put um, their bags on people's doorsteps, ring the doorbell or knock on the door and then walk away uh, about two metres so that people can collect their goods. Now, th this might be good practice, but it's not exactly um, giving people a lot of... Uh, security or, or hope or that, that this is this is a very good way to go about things and so um that this is it also doesn't really necessarily answer the question of of you know is it the right thing to to have a delivery um at home to take a takeaway out rather than go to your local supermarket and a lot of people are saying no and it goes kind of counter to how people see these food delivery apps as operating. You know, they're, they're connecting all of these local businesses with customers across towns and cities around the world. But what's actually happening is they're connecting people to KFC and McDonald's and Burger King. So the actual business here has fallen apart the second those businesses dropped off the service. And there's another problem here, and we're seeing videos being posted online where um, people are saying, oh, you've got to wash everything you get from the supermarket. Um, you've got to leave all your groceries in the garage for 72 hours before you bring them in. So there's concerns as well that takeaways aren't safe, which is also seemingly driving a reduction in consumer demand for takeaway food. Yeah, absolutely. People are afraid that um, you can't, you know, obviously keep a takeaway in a container in a box for three days and wait until you think it's safe enough to open. It's, it's, this is within the hour kind of delivery and it's warm food and it's all been handled by people recently um, and you're expected to eat it. And people are noticeably afraid by that. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing such a, um, a lack in booming of, of the takeaway sector at the moment, which you would expect anyway. So th th what, what people are saying is you know obviously if you've got um delivery drivers that are going from restaurant to restaurant kitchen to kitchen exposed to goodness knows how many people um who are handling food and they're going from house to house that is it's a huge exposure and they're afraid that you know that there is no way really to guarantee that that person would not have picked up something on the way come from a, a kitchen taking it to another kitchen um be touching things uh, accidentally i mean all the people that have um caught this virus haven't done so on purpose it can it can be just a slip you know and and so a lot of people are nervous about that so what experts are saying is look you know it is very highly unlikely that you will get any any kind of issue coming from um the takeaways that you might be getting at home but if you're afraid what you should do is make sure that you grab the bag and use utensils to take um the food out of the containers and put them on your plates then wash your hands don't obviously touch your food with your hands um, if you can possibly avoid it and if you if you feel like you need that extra um, bit of certainty just microwave it for a few seconds and it will be that will get rid of any of the virus on on that surface so uh, the, the thing is to you know use your common sense um, and and obviously make sure that you're being prudent yourself at home and protect yourself at home but the the, the sad thing of, of, of this part of things is that you've got a lot of businesses that are genuinely hanging by a thread they don't have the money that the likes of McDonald's and Burger King and Greggs might have in reserves. They don't have shareholders and big investors that might back them up uh, to, to weather the storm. So if people stop um, ordering takeaways, all these businesses might might collapse. These these workers in, in every kitchen, in every takeaway um, kitchen are, are genuinely frontline workers and they're putting their lives at risk to be able to, to provide a really basic service for people. So I would just say, um, you know, honestly, order a curry if you can, which is what I've been doing um, every, every once in a while. Cheer you up. And um, it helps people and small businesses that really need it right now.
Yeah, it's a super important point. And um, in the UK, a number of services have popped up that make it easier to find out local businesses in your area that are offering new takeaway services or click and collect. So do check those out in your local area and support local businesses. That's super important. Podcast at wired.co.uk with anything you want to share with us on that story, how you're helping to support local businesses. If you are a local business that's come up with a clever way of still getting customers well, not through the door, um, but paying for goods and services. We'd love to hear from you. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We mentioned it right at the top of the podcast. Zoom is now worth eight times more than one of the world's largest airline groups. But that's not where the story stops, is it, Amit? No. So Zoom, I guess, was designed to be this kind of service for businesses, but it's now become the kind of hub for social life and work and basically everything I've spent, you know, probably... 20 hours on zoom in the last couple of weeks or more you know i've done zoom pints zoom pub quizzes we did a zoom poker night last night i'm doing a zoom stag do later on today um and even some actual like zoom work meetings as well thrown in among all that stuff um so yeah as you said the app's kind of got it's gone up from 10 million daily users up to 200 million uh and i'm sure like you guys have done sort of, you know it's been spending a lot more time on on zoom as well doing uh anything but what was intended for which is kind of quite serious work meetings become like the social hub yeah i mean something something i've noticed is um i don't know about you but uh a lot of my friends aren't in london anymore they're either in other countries around the world or other parts of the uk and i wasn't necessarily very good at keeping in touch with them or keeping in touch with them would involve me going to see them now you can't go and see them where it's so much easier to call them up on zoom so staying in touch with people like face-to-face has all of a sudden become something I'm doing a lot more of, which is kind of nice, actually. What I've noticed is that I can't seem to get out of things anymore. So it used to be the case where I'd be like, oh, I'm really busy. Oh, I'm working or whatever. And um, now I just can't because there's literally no escaping it. And so I'll just go on Zoom and I'll be like, oh, hi, how's it going? This is great. It's really Everyone exciting. Everyone knows you have no life. Yeah, not basically. only that, but, but we've started doing uh, pub uh, nights, obviously, for Wired. And you suddenly find yourself in what is a virtual chat room with around 40 different people, some of whom I've never met before. And it's really awkward. And it's not something you'd normally do in a pub. So um, I found that kind of transition of, you know, being in quite a tight knit group, you know, podcast people plus five others to being in basically what is a small gathering um addressing everyone like you're on a podium really weird indeed yeah it's really weird but somehow i've not been able to make those virtual pub uh things i just <laughs> always seem to have something else to have on. um so uh, so i've i've been to zoom virtual jam sessions very difficult uh lags make it very difficult to coordinate instruments um not bad if you're just one person with a guitar and singing uh you you, you can listen i think zoom concerts work but not if you're kind of uh, distributing instruments across people and also next week i have my first zoom spanish lesson which is great because i was never you know this is one benefit of other people being uh, bored, I guess, that, that we've got people that are like, oh, you know, I want to teach people guitar. I want to teach people how to speak Spanish. So I think there's this really awesome thing where Zoom's enabling people to kind of um, connect and share skills and stuff, um, which we otherwise, you know, wouldn't have seen. You know, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have gone and paid for a Spanish lesson, but uh, yeah, I'll sit on, my, sit on my sofa and have a Spanish lesson, please. 
And Amit, all of this interest has caused an absolute frenzy in the amount of people using Zoom and the valuation of it, right? Yeah, so it's shot up to number one on the app list on both iOS and Android. The company's share price has doubled. Um, and another company that's also called Zoom has seen its stock price go up by 900% this year because people have been accidentally buying shares in this completely different company called Zoom Technologies, which I just think is great. Uh and um, House Party, which is another similar app that you might have heard of, that's been, it's had this like surge of popularity recently, kind of come from out of nowhere to kind of jump to really high up in the app charts as well. It's had had 2 million downloads in the first week or the last week of March, I think up from 13,000 to the week before. Um, you know, we're talking about 1000% more downloads of this House Party app. People are having board game nights, they're watching films together, they're doing after work drinks, uh, as we said, um, via video conference. Um, and yeah, it has actually been, I think it's kind of, this whole thing has kind of lowered the barrier to, I, I think people have this psychological barrier about video calls. Uh, and, and as a result, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily do a video call with your friends that live back home or in other countries. But now that barrier is kind of gone and it's kind of nice. And I'm actually speaking to some of my friends more than I, I normally would and seeing them more than I normally would because everyone's at home and no one's gone no one's kind of booked up for the next you know six weeks like they normally would be so it's almost easier to just do spontaneous hangouts um which is really interesting yeah i mean you you say that um people have kind of got over their hang-ups around video calls i think you've almost been forced to they're, they're probably still there it's just you don't really have another option because i think we've we've touched on this a little bit natasha you're saying that suddenly you're thrust into a group of 40 people where only one person can speak at once and it's it's not how people socialize that's that's not how it's it's done it's really really awkward it's not the same is it we're recording this podcast over zoom i think we all realize it's a little bit clunky compared to the in-person experience it's not the same is it yeah yeah the, the band is not flying around quite as smoothly as it normally does um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no you're right it's not quite the same and obviously it's, it doesn't quite um it doesn't quite replicate like from from a sort of psychological point of view obviously it's really important to kind of maintain relationships beyond you know, if you live alone or if you live with just your partner, you know, it's important for your psychological well-being to be able to speak to other people. And, um, you know, doing stuff over Zoom or phone call or whatever isn't quite the same. Um, although some of the people um, that Nicole spoke to for this article we've got online um, kind of said that actually this setup may be better for certain types of people like introverts may enjoy this kind of setup more because they have more control over, you know, when to enter and when to leave a conversation and more kind of time to think about communication and, and 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 that but yeah you're right like it's we're now what three weeks in and i think you know soon we're gonna the novelty of kind of video calls is gonna start to wear off mm. but also we've kind of jumped into this like a load of people suddenly started using zoom and house party and, and that there's other problems as well right because we're just sort of sharing a lot of like access to to our computers that we might not have given so freely before right yeah exactly so Obviously, we've kind of been rushing to find ways around, you know, to do the stuff that we're used to doing, whether that's hanging out with our friends or working. But in that rush, there is concern that some of these video apps have sort of slightly lack security or privacy implications and they're kind of under scrutiny for the first time. So Zoom has been criticised for a lack of kind of transparency around its privacy policy and for its default settings. So, you know, it kind of collects user data for advertising purposes, including the kind of names of the people on the calls and that kind of thing, it, it, it reserves the right, I'm not sure there's any evidence that is actually doing this, but it's, if you read its privacy policy, it kind of reserves the right to 
uh, access video recordings or transcripts of what's been shared on the call and use that for you know anonymized kind of advertising which is kind of alarmed a lot of people um zoom has been frantically kind of trying to row back from some of the stuff so it clarified its privacy policy last week um and and kind of said you know clearly that no data regarding activity on the zoom platform is provided to third parties for advertising purposes but obviously you know that's what security people were kind of concerned about um there's also some issues kind of with the default um setting so like the host of a meeting can do a bunch of stuff that actually maybe if you if you click on a link to a zoom meeting you may not be aware that the host can kind of record you record your video record your audio they can also um if they have it set up they can track whether attendees have got the zoom window open so i think james is the host of this meeting so if i were to minimize the window and you know start playing football manager or poker or something he would uh, know that i wouldn't pay attention <laughs> um and I've, I've read reports online of some companies even mandating that employees who are working from home for the first time kind of dial into a zoom call at the start of the day and just keep their webcam on the entire time throughout their shift so you know zoom maybe doesn't have the protections built into it that we would like uh and, and if employers choose to abuse that then that could be an issue uh and it's also kind of relatively straightforward for people to kind of crash zoom meetings so this is something called zoom bombing where people have been uh essentially like either finding zoom links online or like guessing the numbers and like kind of just crashing into random zoom meetings and then kind of like sharing their screen and sharing you know pornography or you know just kind of ru ruining other people's zoom meetings um so that's another issue so what is zoom doing about this because i've heard people saying that actually it's almost like all the all the world's attention is suddenly on zoom and the company's like oh well oh yeah i guess we will fix some of these things that we've been <laughs> that we've known about for a while so is it actually getting on top of these problems yeah so earlier this week it kind of said that for the next 90 days it's going to stop adding any new features and it's going to put all its teams to kind of work fully on kind of fixing some of these security and privacy concerns um when i opened the app earlier i got like a massive download of like security patches and updates and things like that that i think are trying to address some of these problems but i think there's a fair way to go on that front um we've also seen a similar narrative with house party which in a fascinating uh bit of news uh earlier this week kind of offered a one million dollar reward for anyone who had information uh there was a rumor going around on social media that house party had been hacked and it was kind of sharing your information um there's no evidence to suggest this and house party kind of put out like basically a bounty for uh information on whoever was kind of behind this campaign which i thought was really interesting um but i think the most the best thing you can do to kind of protect yourself is to basically look at your zoom privacy settings and make sure that you have got them set up how you want so you can have end-to-end -end encryption for your meetings you can put watermarks on your content so it can't get shared if someone kind of crashes and, and uh, records it and you can set meetings up so only people from your organization kind of kind of enter the meeting which kind of solves that zoom bombing problem so you know like with all these platforms you know there are ways you can make them more secure yeah, and that's a key point, really. A lot of people are working remotely for the first time, conducting very sensitive conversations over the internet, be they business or personal, um, for the first time, and making sure that you've checked the privacy settings, that you're doing best practice. That's super, super important. But also, we've got a company that was fairly obscure. Not many people were using it. Suddenly, all the eyes of the world are on it in the UK. We've got the government cabinet holding daily briefings over Zoom. So it's really, really imperative that this company introduces 
lots of measures to make sure it is as secure as people assume it is, as it almost becomes a vital public service. It's how so many people are doing their professional and personal lives these days. It needs to be up to task. And so we'll be following this story pretty closely over the coming weeks to check in on how well Zoom's doing and anything else that people need to be made aware of. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else we've talked about on the podcast this week. We would normally turn to your email but alas the podcast inbox was empty this week and we're aware that a few less people are listening because you're used to listening to us on your commute or when you go to the gym that's totally understandable but for those of you that are hanging around with us through this very very difficult time do get in touch let us know what you're up to how you're getting on with working from home how you're getting on um, from homeschooling your kids anything like that or any points that you want to make based on the stories that we talked about on the show podcast at wired .co.uk. Thanks very much for listening this week and we'll be back again next week. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye.